Well, welcome this morning. It is, as you can see, Palm Sunday, and we are taking a break from our Daniel series. Uh, however, the last two or three chapters, whether you're in the South community or uh, Highway 33, we've got two more chapters to go, chapter 11 and 12, and they are doozies. They are amazing. In fact, chapter 12, of course, introduces in the clearest terms, the power of the resurrection. And if any of you have ever read theology about the resurrection, you will know that it goes back uh, to Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. So we've got some exciting material to unpack uh, before we finish the Daniel series. And uh, but in between that, of course, we're now entering Easter. And what you'll know is that we've made a big deal of Easter at Willow Park Church. We're beginning, of course, here on Palm Sunday, and we're going to be preaching and thinking about Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. Of course, the clearing of the temple and, of course, the story of the fig tree of which he spoke to clearly. And why did he do that? It always seems a little mean, doesn't it? Well, you'll find out why he did that as we carry on with this service. But I don't know what burdens you are carrying as we begin uh, this service. I don't know what you're believing God to do. Perhaps you're carrying a heavy burden. Perhaps you're carrying a a sense that you really need the Lord to bring that peace, that shalom peace, that peace that comes, that brings blessing and will cause your life to flourish and to grow. Well, I believe that as we step into worship and we step into this service, that if you have an open heart, the Lord wants to come and he truly wants to meet with you and be with you. So, Father, thank you for the opportunity to begin this Palm Sunday service together. We thank you for the joy that there is in celebrating the King and his entrance into Jerusalem. What a remarkable image as you, Lord, fulfilled the prophecy that spoke in Zechariah, in Zechariah 9.9, that spoke about the entrance of the Messiah coming on a donkey, on a colt, into the city. Uh, we rejoice with that. We give thanks for that, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you will bless our service right now and encourage us as we go deeper into your word. Amen. Right now, we're going to step in to a time of worship. And as we worship together, I just really do believe that the Holy Spirit will come and encourage you and minister to you right now. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Palm Sunday. As we, uh, as we start off this most holy of weeks, um, as we go into this, this morning we're going to be singing praise and worship, and we're going to be um, directing our praise towards, towards God and towards Jesus for what he's done. Um, but as I grew up as a kid, I always was confused about Palm Sunday because everyone that would lay down their lay down their leaves, lay, lay down lay down their palms, I would just be like, one week later, their hearts change, and I never wanted to be like that. And my prayer is that we're not like that, and we understand now what Christ's kingdom is about. So I'm going to read a bit of a reading here, and then after this next song, I'm going to talk a little bit into. Um, 
just the history of Palm Sunday. So I'm going to read from Luke um, chapter 19. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie, the, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it. And just as they told them, as they were untying the colt, the owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God with loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, if you even, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now you're hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Father, I pray that we would recognize your goodness and you coming to us. I pray that we would recognize who you are, Jesus, as we, as we celebrate you and we sing this song. In your name, Jesus, amen.
this first day of Holy Week, we see this juxtaposition happening uh, in Jerusalem at this time. King Herod and, uh, and Pontius Pilate are coming in, are coming into the city on the other side of the city. And as they come in, they're riding these war horses. They're riding these horses that signify they want this kingdom. And anybody that's going to come up against them needs to have bigger might and stronger might. And what does Jesus do? He's not in this place where he needs to prove himself with his strength or his might or his military power, which he very well could do at the snap of a finger. But he calls for this donkey and he rides in on a donkey, signaling peace, signaling love. And these people that are celebrating him are hoping for a victorious king to come and conquer Herod, come and conquer this land. But Jesus says, my kingdom is different. My kingdom is upside down to what your kingdom is, your kingdom ideals. And Jesus arrived at the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. He deliberately enacted the 500-year-old prophecy from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will take away the chariot from Ephraim and the, and the war horse from Jerusalem. The weapons of war will be broken, and he will teach peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. 
Jesus not only entered Jerusalem from the opposite direction than the Roman governor, but in the opposite manner, riding on a donkey, proclaiming peace and love for all those who are hurt and broken and poor. That's the God that I serve. That's the God who we worship. And now we're going to be singing a song about our way maker, our miracle worker, and our promise keeper. And he's the light in the darkness.
never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop.
Treasure. 
Father, we prayed or we sang so many truths about who you are this morning, about what you can do and, and, and what you promised to us and that you always, you always come through, Father. You are so faithful in the tiniest things in our lives. Father, I pray that today we feel that we feel the weight of your love, Father, that line that says, I can see the love in your eyes. I pray that we feel it so deeply in us today, today and for the rest of our lives, forevermore, Father, that we see that love and we feel that love that you have in your eyes for us, that you chose us and that you delight over us, Father. I pray over there the sermon this morning, I pray over the words that they would not be um, the speaker's words, but they would be your words, Father. Um, We pray that we can glorify and worship you this morning. Amen. Well, it's that time when we take communion and we remember all that the Lord has done and the way that he has come to rescue us. I was reading recently about the story of Arbroath Abbey. Now, you may not be aware of Arbroath Abbey. Why would you? Unless, of course, you're from Scotland and you know that Arbroath is by Dundee and it's on the East Coast. It's a wild coast. Uh, Arbroath is an ancient Scottish town, a market town and fishing port that was famous. It was famous for many things. It was famous in the Middle Ages uh, for its abbey and for the prayer that went on and the abbey that was built, which was massive, actually. It's now in ruins after the uh, Reformation. And But when you go to Arbroath Abbey and you see the ruins, uh, you'll notice something quite interesting. High up in the ruins, there is a massive round window. Now, that's not unusual for some uh, cathedrals and abbeys. If you've traveled through Europe and, in fact, been to some of the older cities in uh, Canada, like uh, Montreal or Quebec, where you see the churches and high up, you see a big, beautiful, round uh, window. The remarkable thing about this round window was that they used to burn fires in this window. And the light of the fire would go out across the ocean. And the reason the monks did this was to warn the sailors about the reef that is off the coast of Arbroath and has has actually brought many ships to ruin. Uh, All the way as recently as HMS York sank about 200 years ago on that spot. But through the Middle Ages and, and before that, this spot was always known for the reef that was there. They attempted to do things to warn ships. They put a bell on the reef and it, after a storm it blew away. And so it became known as Bell Reef. But eventually, of course, there was going to be built a a massive lighthouse on this reef. But before that, the abbey would burn a continuous fire that would alert sailors and know that they were in the vicinity of our broth. 
For me, that is a fabulous picture of the light of the gospel in the life of the church that needs to keep burning to warn people about the wreckage and the pain of sin. And there is a way to avoid the wreckage and the storm of darkness and of sin. What is that light that shines? Well, obviously, in the minds of the monks, that fire that burnt throughout the evenings was a message, a message of hope, a message of salvation. And everything that is in the cross is a burning light that tells us of hope and salvation that we can avoid the storms and the wreckage. And so as we take communion, we are reminded that the body of Christ was broken. And the reason his life was broken was so that he could send out the light of the world, the way of salvation. He paid for original sin. He paid the price for our brokenness. He came as a beacon to rescue us from the wreckage of sin and death. Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ that was broken for us. And Lord, even as I look at the shape of this wafer, which is a round wafer, it reminds me of the round window where the fire would always burn in the abbey to let people know the dangers and the hope. And we thank you that your body shows us that there is hope, that there is forgiveness and there is a way of salvation. The body of Christ broken for you. Jesus poured out the wine, which represented his blood. The blood that would take away the sins of the world. The blood that would save us from our lives being shipwrecked. The blood that would stop us from being torn to pieces by the power of sin and death and Satan. The blood that protects us. The blood that saves us. The blood that delivers us. Lord, we thank you. For this, and we remember the cost that you paid and the way that you gave your life for us. And that your blood was shed. Only by the blood of Jesus do we find forgiveness and are we cleansed. The blood of Christ that takes away the sins of the world. Drink it in remembrance of him. Amen. Maybe you feel adrift. Maybe you feel lost. Well, let me tell you, look out towards the cross like that burning light and you will find rescue and help and salvation. Palm Sunday. What a day to celebrate. And now we're going to hand over 
to Courtney and the news of all that is going on in Willow Park Church. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Hello, Willow Park Church. My name is Courtney. Thank you for joining us at Church Online. Here is your family news. Alpha is a free online course that creates a space to explore the Christian faith and discuss life's big questions. We are starting the Alpha course online starting Tuesday, April 13th at 7 p.m., and it will run for several weeks. If you haven't taken this course yet, or even if you haven't taken it in a while, we encourage you to sign up and bring a friend. Learn more at willowparkchurch.com alpha. The Marriage Course is a free online series of sessions designed to help couples invest in their relationships and build a stronger marriage. The next Marriage Course will be starting on April 19th. It's free to sign up and you have the flexibility of watching the weekly video at a time that works best for you and your spouse. Learn more and sign up today at willowparkchurch.com marriage. Clubs is starting up next week and this time it will be in three locations in Rutland, in the Mission, and in Lake Country. This is an amazing opportunity to bring your kids and your kids' friends and neighbors to a fun night of games, songs, crafts, and more. Register soon as space is limited. Learn more at willowparkchurch.com clubs. Our online groups for women are starting up again in April. Gather is a time for women to connect and it happens every Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. starting this week on April 1st. Deeper is a Bible study for women that happens Monday nights at 7 p.m. starting April 12th. And this session, they will be reading and discussing Craig Rochelle's latest book called Winning the War in Your Mind. Find out more about these online groups on our website. Easter is just around the corner, and we are so excited to celebrate with you here at Willow Park Church. We have a whole week of special services and prayer nights planned. This week, Monday through Thursday, we will have four nights of prayer and worship for Holy Week, online each evening at 7 p.m. We will also have multiple online and drive-in services on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. You can get all of the details on our website at willowparkchurch.com Easter. That's all for your family news. Thanks and enjoy your service. Good morning, Willow Park Church South family. It is good to be with you this Sunday online. Um, I'm Pastor Jeremy. For those who don't know, um, I've been making regular appearances on here, my monthly appearances, and so got another one in for this month. Uh, the last one, or you weren't going to see me this month. I know it would have been sad, but uh, I'm glad again to be speaking with you. Uh, this Sunday is the Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. Um, this is, we're going to talk about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem today. And you know what? As a Willow Park Church, we really want to um, dive deeper into this week, understanding each day and what it meant and the events that took place. And so we are going to have Holy Week prayer, or Holy Week, I guess you can say, almost, almost like a service, but an hour prayer essentially, uh, starting tomorrow at 7 p.m., 
And so we're going to have Monday at 7 p.m., Tuesday at 7 p.m., Wednesday at 7 p.m., Thursday at 7 p.m. Then we're going to have our Good Friday service that's going to be online, I believe. And we'll see what else is going to be coming down the pipe in regards to the gathering notice and what we might do. But this, this year, we really want to grasp Holy Week and what it meant with Jesus in those last days leading up to the cross and what it means for us. And so we hope that you join in. Join, it starts tomorrow, 7 to 8. There'll be prayer. There'll be worship. There'll be scripture reading. There'll even be, in a sense, a, a small devo at time, too. And so this is really a great time to embrace this week, Holy Week, and as we really celebrate uh, the path leading up to Easter, which is it's huge, a monumental, ground, the, the, everything to our faith. And so... Uh, let's really embrace what is going to take place this week as we walk through Holy Week. And so, as I mentioned, I am speaking today, and I'm going to be working out of the text in Luke 19, uh, 28 to 44. And so, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, before we begin, uh, I just want to be start with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather online, Lord, and uh, we're excited for the news that we can gather in person here too, and Lord, we will do what we can. We'll talk tomorrow what this looks like, you know, and we are excited that it's a possibility. Um, Lord, we're going to be very careful as we are so recognize that, you know, what the, the virus is out there, and we want to be very conscious of our people and to those in our community. And so, Lord, give us wisdom as we navigate. But, Lord, we, we come today and we thank you that we could worship you. Lord, we thank you for um, spring, Lord. And we're excited to really, Lord, grasp, Lord, what today means and, Lord, what your triumphal entry means and what this week means and, Lord, what it, how it helps us as we lead up to the cross. So, Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear. Lord, we pray that um, the words would just resonate in our hearts, Lord, and they would spur us into action. And Lord, again, we just thank you so much, Lord, that you came for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Luke 19, 28 to 44. We're going to get there for a sec, but you know, I just want to begin with uh, even just the stories, I guess you can say. You know, this story, Luke 19, 28 to 44, uh, there's much expectation that is um, happening as Jesus is about to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And, you know, it got me thinking of stories of expectation in my own life. Uh, you know, it's, I knew what I'd get married, you know. It's, I, but, you know, I never knew who I'd get married to, you know. Like, you would hope, you know, like maybe it's going to be this person. But I never knew who I was going to marry. Never, uh, my expectation was marriage, but who I was going to marry, I had no idea. And, but, you know, I was blown away by my beautiful wife, Kim, and who we just had a birthday on Friday. And she called it her birthday week because, weekend because it was during COVID. And she's like, it's a, it's a thing now during COVID. You get a birthday weekend. And so we really celebrated my wife and she felt loved this weekend. She, she's not a diva. Uh, she is just joking. And so, um, but you know, it, amazing. My, I had expectation to get married, but my marriage and my wife, it's just my expectations have been blown away. Uh, I never thought I'd live in B.C., 
Never. You know, I, I'm a boy from Pittsburgh, uh, not even from Pittsburgh, a small town called Arnold, Pennsylvania. And so I grew up in the ghetto where it was hard, where very few left, made it out of, and never thought I'd make it out. I always thought I'd be in Pittsburgh. And so, you know, I expected to follow Christ, but I expected to have a life where, you know, I thought we had a, a steady income because, you know, I t- that's what my goal was. But never in my wildest dreams and any of my expectations that I think I'd go all the way to Portland, Oregon, meet my wife and go to Saskatchewan up into Canada and be there for 14 years, start a family and now we're here in BC uh, and our family, we're raising them and they're growing and we're here doing ministry. Never in my wildest expectations that I think this. I knew that Jesus had you know, things in store for me. Didn't know what they looked like though. And then we have talked about this recently. My wife, you know what, she had her purse stolen out of her vehicle, and then they used our money, and, you know, our expectation was that we'd get that back. And you know what, and that we believe that the God is a God of justice, and you know what, things will be made right, and obviously there's banks in there and systems taking place. Things will work out, but, you know what, the money comes back, but the way it comes back in there wasn't my expectation. And we'll get to that too at, towards the end of this. And so the disciples and the Pharisees, you know, they were the people, they were shouting Hosanna in this story of Jesus' triumphal entry. Through the story of his uh, triumphal entry, you know, there was a lot of expectations that are presented in this story. A lot of expectations. And then a week later from this moment though, a lot's going to change. A lot of events are going to unfold, and those who came with expectations are going to be faced with a decision. Those who came with high expectations, they now have this decision to make during this week and during the time of Christ, his, his crucifixion. Because their expectations have changed. They haven't been met, maybe. And so, let's look at this story. And first, before we di- read this story in Luke 8, 19, 28 to 44, I just want to give us some context of what Jesus is entering to into Jerusalem. First, Jerusalem was the des- destination of our Lord. This was well, everything pointing towards him. It was happening for some time. And from Luke's gospel and from the accounts of Matthew and Mark, whoopsies. <laughs> We're just talking about blooper reels that will probably enter onto the blooper reel there. But from the Luke's gospel and from the accounts of Matthew and Mark, we know that Jesus has been bound for Jerusalem for some time. Ever since the transfiguration of Jesus, he had been speaking to his disciples of going to Jerusalem where he would be put to death. And he even said this, you know, publicly to a degree that, you know, he wouldn't be stopped from going to Jerusalem and to his death. And so here they're talking about, you know, this is the Messiah. He has come. But here he's like, yeah, we're going to end up in Jerusalem. That's where we're supposed to be. But, you know, I'm going to die. And so it's just, and then they still didn't get it, the disciples. Still didn't get it. Second, all Israel knew is it would be in Jerusalem where the Messiah would be enthroned their king. This is all Israel knew. This is like, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. We've got to be there. This is a space that's going to happen where the king will be enthroned and, and we'll have our you know, authority back. And so it had been long been expected that this is where it would happen, Jerusalem. So Jesus had talked about going to Jerusalem. He knew it was all leading there. And, you know, Israel knew it would be in Jerusalem. And so this is where it was going to happen. And they get this from Zechariah. Oh, Oh, it's not there. Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. And Zechariah 9, 9 to 10 says this. 
Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So in this triumphal entry, this was prophesied. This is what they knew. This was a story that was being told. And at the time of this prophecy, Israel had already been 80 years without a king. At the time of this prophecy from Zechariah, Israel had already been 80 years without a king. And they'd returned from extra, but still needed hope. And the prophecy brought hope and expectation to them that this was going to happen. So in the triumphal entry, Jesus' presentation of himself to Israel as their Messiah is seen as the fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. All eyes were on Jerusalem, and Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. This was going to happen. This was going to take place. And at the time of Jesus' arrival, at the time of his arrival, at the time of what we're talking about here in Luke 19, it had been, Israel had been waiting a thousand years. As time passes, there is this anticipation and excitement. And with, our expect, with that, our expectations grow for what will take place, right? It just keeps continuing to grow. As each day goes by, the anticipation becomes more palpable. The expectations begin to raise. The story becomes bigger and bigger. It's like, you know, Star Wars came out. And I was thinking about how like, Star Wars came out. And, you know, at the first... Original episodes, episode four, five, and six, what it's called now. But at that moment, it was one, two, and three. But you know what? When I was about, I think it was early 2000s or late 1990s, they are like, the new Star Wars are coming out. And it's going to be, you know, before that time to talk about Darth Vader and how he became Darth Vader. And so there was this much anticipation, right? Because it had been 20, 30 years since the original release. And Star Wars was huge. And people loved it. And it was this following. People, uh, you know, they've got their Star Wars figures. They're dressing up as Chewbacca, you know, and they have their Yoda stuffies. And so there's this massive expectation and anticipation for the new episodes that were going to come out. What will be called now episode one, two, and three. Right? And then this is what it was you know, that came out. Oh, here we go. The Phantom Menace, episode one. Oh, expectation was high. This movie came out, though. And you know what? It didn't meet the expectations that were there. People looked at this and they're like, wow, that was a disaster. I'm not sure how Glenn feels, how Glenn feels about episode one. I know he's a Star Wars fan. You know, he's probably... Um, you know, wood burning a Chewbacca as we speak. But, uh, you know, there wasn't much great that came from this episode that people said, uh, except Jar Jar Binks. People like Jar Jar Binks. I'm not sure if you know who Jar Jar Binks is. I'm not sure if you're a Star Wars person, but they said Jar Jar Binks was good. And you know what? He was good. I'm not sure how people feel about it. I feel like Jar Jar Binks was quality. But this is what I had, like, expectation was high for Star Wars. But it fell hard. Expectation was high for Jesus or, you know, for the coming of the Messiah, what it was going to mean, what it meant for Israel. It was all-time high. Anticipation was there, and it was palpable at this moment. As the triumphal entry is about to happen, it's like, here we go. This is it. 
The third thing about you know, what has taken place in, with the context of Jesus entering to Jerusalem was Passover was at hand, which brought many spiritual pilgrims to Jerusalem and fueled the fires of spiritual and messianic expectations. Like when they would come together for Passover, they would think, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the time. And so then they would get together and they would talk and have conversation about the coming Messiah. You know, maybe this is it, but you know, he's coming and it's going to be so good. And we will celebrate again. Spiritual Israelites from all over Israel would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem just as Jesus' family did. And the Passover feast. Is what the Passover feast is, is it's celebrating Jewish liberation from foreign domination. So during the time this population of Jerusalem would grow, it would grow when Passover happened. It, it would be like Kelowna in the summer. You know, our population just explodes. People coming here for their vacation and to be at the beach and for the warmth. Jerusalem was like that during Passover. Their population would grow and explode, coming to celebrate. A theologian said this about Passover. There we go. We're getting there. Ederson, he writes, Everyone in Israel was thinking about the feast. For the previous month, it had been the subject of discussion in the academies, and for the last two Sabbaths at least, that of the discourse in the synagogues. Everyone was going to Jerusalem or had those near and dear to them there, or at least watched the festive processions to the metropolis of Judaism. It was a gathering of universal Israel that of the memorial of the birth night of the nation and of its exodus, when friends from afar would meet and new friends be made, when offerings long due would be brought and purification long needed be obtained and all worship in that grand and glorious temple with its gorgeous ritual. National and religious feelings were alike stirred and what reached far back to the first and pointed far forward for the final deliverance. This was happening. Much anticipation, much celebration. John specifically tells us that many came to Jerusalem from the country to celebrate the Passover. He says this in John eleven fifty five. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Lastly, this is what was happening. This is the context behind. Then we're going to get into this application and to what we can grasp from this triumphal entry. But to have an understanding of what Jesus is entering into. Jesus had he had performed a number of miracles which attracted the crowds and they further fueled the messianic enthusiasm. You know, blind Bartimaeus, accompanied by another unblind, unnamed blind man, were given sight at Jericho. The most spectacular miracle, however, was the raising of Lazarus, which happened very near to Jerusalem in Bethany. It was so close to there. Jesus raised somebody from the dead. And the result of this miracle was even greater popularity for our Lord, with some believing in him and others not. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. That's what it says in John eleven forty five to 46. And this popularity, it alarmed the Pharisees who met together to discuss this crisis and who from that day on were intent on killing Jesus. Based upon you know, the counsel spoken by Cephas in John eleven forty nine, 49, he says this, Cephas, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedite, 
expedient for you that the one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Jesus, therefore, he retreated, avoiding public exposure until the proper time of his death would come. He went into the wilderness in Ephraim, as the only mentioned there in Zechariah, staying there with his disciples. And so, one can hardly grasp the mood of many at the moment in history. This was anticipation, expectation, at an all-time high. They were looking for Messiah, and Jesus was this likely candidate, and the moment was right. They were looking for Messiah, and they've been looking for him for a long time, watching carefully for any identification or indication of this man. But in contrast, the Pharisees and religious leaders were determined that he was not the Messiah, and that he would have no opportunity to attempt to acclaim such as the masses who were wishing that they were, he was their king. They were intent on putting him to death, and were only looking for the right opportunity. And this is what Jesus is walking into. This is his entry into Jerusalem. Now let's read this scripture, now that we know what is happening. Luke 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as they had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you even... If you, even you, had only known on this day, that would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave you one stone or on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here it is, Jesus finally enters in. The king of the Jews is about to be crowned. Everything Israel longed for, everything Israel had hoped for, years of oppression, pilgrimage, and hopelessness was about to be filled. Finally, thank you, Jesus. There's this huge buildup of excitement for this moment. Miracles had been performed all along the way to Jerusalem. His following had grown. He had been paraded in as the one that they had been waiting for, the one to come. People have created palms, and these palms, they show peace, victory, triumph, and eternal life. And they're laying them down as Jesus walks. People are even laying down their cloaks as Jesus walks. They're showing that they submit to him. I lay down everything for you. I give you my all. Anticipation. 
excitement, expectation, palpable. But the outcome doesn't unfold as they expect. And as these same individuals and the disciples, they'll, they'll turn against them throughout this week because their expectations are not met. So what can we glean from this story? What can we take from this story? Knowing what's going to take place, but knowing what the context or what the scripture says. And the first thing that we can glean, there's just two things I want to impart to you today. The first thing is that Jesus is Lord. Let's talk about this. You know, we're talking about this as the disciples, they see this. And this was huge. The disciples, they would often refer to Jesus as Lord, Son of David, Son of God, Messiah. Very rarely does Jesus refer to himself this way. And as he enters into the city, he is making the exclamation that he is Lord, that he is the king that, come, that has been has coming, that was written about in the Old Testament. When he calls himself Lord, we see this response from a person who hears that the Lord needs his vow. And we want to mimic this as we proclaim Jesus is our Lord. So let's listen to this. There's this interaction where, you know, Jesus tells the disciples, go down, there'll be this colt, you know what, and you know what, untie it and take it and bring it to me. If somebody asks you, if you, why are you doing that? And then just tell them the Lord needs it. And so that unfolds as Jesus explained it. Someone says, why are you taking my colt? And the Lord needs it. And that's just it. And then the, the guy doesn't say anything. But Jesus is calling himself Lord, and he is also asking for something from someone. He's asking for the cult. You know, this cult it would have been a source of income eventually, a source of, you know what, that it brings this owner, you know, it's, you know, it helps his family live. It's a work. It does work around the farm. It would have been used in agricultural and trade. It was constantly carrying something. It was working these are what these donkeys did. The disciple, he comes down to this person and at the request of Jesus and begins to take this donkey. You know, it's a young donkey. Eventually, it's going to be used for all this work. And it seems like Jesus condones commandeering. Right, well, let's just take that donkey. You know, listen, disciples, go into the village. You'll see a donkey. Take it and bring it to me. Don't ask. If somebody catches you, though, in the act, just tell them the Lord needs it. And you know what? They'll get it. This makes no sense. But what it does show us is that Jesus knows what is ahead. He is so aware of the situation. He knows that the donkey will be tied up as they enter and he just, and just tell them the Lord needs it. But what is amazing about this interaction is that the response the disciples give to the donkey owner, it just seems fine. You know, they, the owner sees it and he says, what are you doing? And he says, the Lord needs it. And the owner just, it seems fine with the owner. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe the owner's response was something that be, couldn't be put into the Bible. Maybe there were some choice words. I don't know. But the reality is that the response seems fine with the owner. The Lord needs it. Okay? So what this tells us, what this shows us, is that if Jesus is Lord... Are you willing to give him everything you have when he asks for it? Your possessions, your income, your life. So if Jesus is Lord in your life, if Jesus is Lord in my life, have I given him lordship over everything? 
You know, if Jesus says, give more, Jeremy, will, will I give more? If Jesus says, you need to volunteer, you need to do this, will I do it? If Jesus, you know, says, you need to use your talents for the kingdom, will I? Will you? No, if Jesus asks you to give your job for something that it take, give up your job for something that is less money, but more impactful for the kingdom of Christ, would you do it? Like, how would your interaction be if you were the owner of the donkey? Like, maybe, would you have some choice words that couldn't be put into the Bible? Or would you recognize that Jesus is Lord over all? I have, and everything I have is already his. And if he's asking for me for something, of course I will give it to him because it's already his. He is the Lord of my life. And so the question to ask yourself, is Jesus my Lord? And the only way to know this is as you look at your life and you're saying, yeah, I'm giving it all to him. He's asking, I'm saying, yes, Lord, I give it to you. Or maybe there's something you're working through right now where you know he's asking you and you're like, I don't know. Jesus, Lord, is he asking you to give whatever that your donkey is that you're not willing to give up right now? The Lord needs it. He needs it. He wants us to participate with him. Is Jesus the Lord? Is he Lord? The second lesson is related to the first. And the second lesson is this. Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations. This is a terrible point, Jeremy. Not convincing at all. I'm getting somewhere with this point. Stay with me. Let me lay it out for you. The Jews were expecting a king who would be a great military leader like David who would throw off the yoke of Rome and establish God's kingdom by force. When we read some of the Old Testament prophecies, we can understand why they had such they had these expectations. You know, these expectations weren't unreasonable. But Jesus was radically different than their expectations. Like when he rode into Jerusalem, he did not do so on a horse, the symbol of warfare and of some conquerors. He didn't even pick a mule. The steed of Jewish kings like David himself. He didn't even pick a mule. Rather, he chose a donkey, a pack animal, a lowly beast of burden as his royal mount. As Zechariah had prophesied, he had come humbly to bring peace. And as I mentioned before, the Passover was a feast, was a celebration of Jewish liberation from foreign dominance. But Jerusalem was still under the rule of Rome. The appointed king, Herod, was the king that the Jewish people were waiting for, wasn't the king that the Jewish people were waiting for. He was appointed by Caesar, who is Pontius Pilate. When there is a big celebration by a group of people happening in the city that you know is being ruled by another nation, the leader of that ruling nation is going to come in to make sure that there isn't a revolution that's going to take place. So Pontius Pilate, he comes down to Jerusalem at this time to make sure everything is under control to show the Roman rule over Jerusalem, to show his power. So when he comes in from the west, Pilate comes in to show his power. He comes in on a war horse with a massive army to show his power and rule that he would rule this place by force and by war. His entrance was essentially this military parade. It was intended to show force, to intimidate, and would be re- to intimidate revolutionaries. This parade was essentially showing everyone he ruled this world. Jesus comes in on a donkey, an animal that speaks of peace. 
there are two very different parades that are going to collide this week of Holy Week. The way Jesus comes in is almost a mockery to the way that Pilate comes in. The donkey isn't even a full-sized donkey, but a donkey's colt. Jesus would have came in on something that could barely hold him. His feet possibly dragged on the ground as he came in. It's like me riding my four-year-old daughter's bike, coming in, like here I am to bring, bring peace with my little bell. Ding, ding, and the little tassels coming out the side. Pilate came in with the parade of war. Jesus came in in a parade of peace. Jesus used the donkey to connect with the common people. Life was not easy for a Jew living under Roman rule in the first century, and much, much more for those who were poor. But Jesus embraced the poor and sick people during his time there on earth. His choice of a donkey instead of a horse was, his way, was God's way of saying that he came as a king who will serve and save the oppressed. Israel was ready for Rome to be dethroned, and Jesus was ready to come to bring the kingdom of God, but not the way they expected, not the way they needed. They thought, not the way they thought they needed. The kingdom of God, which he preached and inaugurated, was not an earthly political kingdom, but the rule of God in the hearts of people who know and serve him. But this was not the kingdom which the people expected or wanted. So they rejected Jesus as their Lord. In our Christian lives, as we grow older, we encounter situations in which God does not fulfill our expectations. Maybe perhaps he doesn't bring a marriage partner into your life. Or maybe you, you find that your marriage hasn't lived up to your expectations. Or maybe you've passed, been passed over for a promotion time and time again that you really thought, thought you deserved. Or maybe illness or tragedy has struck your life in an unexpected way. And the temptation in all these situations is to bail out of what the Christian faith teaches and to do things your way. You marry that non-Christian who is, in the, who is in love with you. You file for divorce. You grow resentful and bitter over missed opportunities. You give up confidence in God's love, and you no longer trust him. And as I've grown older as a Christian, I've seen these sorts of things happen again and again in the lives of my friends, my Christian friends. When God doesn't live up to expectations, then we jettison God and do things the way we think they should be done and resent him for not giving us what we want. And what I want to say here is the first lesson is what the first lesson I said taught us. The first thing I pointed out, Jesus is the Lord. He's under no obligation to live up to our expectations. But what we find out is that he exceeds our expectations and gives us exactly what we need and more. He said, I'll be Lord. I am the Messiah. But it's not going to fit into the box that you're creating is going to blow your box to smithereens. So many of us seem to think that if Christ doesn't fit our expectations, then we'll reject him as the crowds in Jerusalem eventually would go on to do. But Christ is Lord. And he doesn't have to fit our expectations of him. Christ has never promised, you know, maybe this, you know, it's life of roses and everything, but he's promised a good life with him, that he'll take care of you, that he'll look after you, and that things, when they get tough, he'll be right there with you. The disciple is not above his master, and his master has chosen. The master, Jesus, chose this road to Golgotha. 
What I'm saying is that there, we must tailor expectations to what God decrees. Not to try to tailor God to fit our expectations. Christ is Lord, and he knows what is best. If we try to make him fit our expectations, what is acceptable to us, or else we'll reject him, then that is the path to self-destruction. We must not be like the people in Jerusalem who held Christ as their king one day on the, you know, at Palm Sunday, just so long as he fit their image that they had created and their expectation. But let us rather acknowledge him truly as our king, truly as our Lord, our sovereign God, and receive him for whatever he decrees over our life, but knowing that he has good things for us and that he will look after us. Are you going to turn away when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? Are you going to turn away from him? Are we ready to sing a song of praise, but only as long as Jesus is doing what we want? Are we ready to spread our cloaks on the road in front of him to do the showy and flamboyant thing, but also now to follow him in trouble, controversy, trial, and death? Will we keep our cloaks down and say, I'm still following you? I mentioned the story, and other times that I've been here, you know, my wife's wallet's been stolen. They spent oodles of money. You know, we were expecting, you know, banks come through. We would get our money back through the banks. As time went on, you know, one bank gave us back our money. The other bank wasn't too sure. And it actually unfolded that we didn't get our money back from one of the banks. And so here we are talking with our child, Malachi, and Zion, or both of them, our oldest two, just about... You know what? Yeah, we might not get our money back, but what does that change about my relationship with Christ? We know that he is a God of justice and he'll look out. We know that, you know, he will restore what the locust has stolen. We're not sure what it's going to look like. We trust that, you know what? He will do good in the midst of this. Our expectation was that it would be reimbursed. But the way... It got back to us. It was nothing we expected. Jesus, not meeting my expectations, but for the good. We have these expectations on what Jesus will do. Guarantee you he'll blow them out of the water. I guarantee you it'll be better than what you ever expected. And I guarantee you it'll be what you need. The beauty of the story is that somebody, actually people were humble enough, I guess. I don't know. What we lost was restored. Not in the way we thought, but in a better way. People participating. People being moved by Christ. Expectations. Yes. Jesus doesn't meet them, but he always exceeds them. He always exceeds. And this is what Palm Sunday is about. Jesus exceeding our expectations, giving the people of Israel what they needed, but, but not the way they thought they needed it. Giving the world what we needed, but not what we even knew we needed. Meeting and shattering our expectations. Jesus.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are our Lord. And Lord, Palm Sunday shows us that you are Lord. And Lord, that as you come and you ask for whatever that donkey is in our life, Lord, Lord, we want to freely give it to you knowing that it is yours, Jesus. Lord, the people uh, at home, they, are, they know there's maybe something they're wrestling with. Oh, I should do this. Should I do this? And Jesus is asking me. I'm not sure it's going to be hard. But if Jesus is Lord, will you give it up to him? Lord, the expectation was that you would come. You would be king. That you would you know, finally stop the oppression from the Roman rule. That Jerusalem would be restored. And that Israel would be seen as in its rightful place. That was the expectation, Lord, but you didn't meet that. But you actually exceeded everything that Israel needed, everything the world needed. And Lord, that's just like in our lives. Lord, we have expectations that we put, but Lord, you go and you exceed them, and you give us more than we thought we needed, but exactly what you knew we we needed. So Lord, we lay down our life to you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining me this Sunday. Have a great rest of your week.